Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1 as we continue in our series. The title today is Nothing is Impossible. Nothing is impossible. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. We read the passage of scripture earlier, but I would encourage you to bring your Bible, open it up to it, as we'll be continuing in it. Let me ask you a question as we begin. What is one of the hardest scientific, religious, or human fact or idea that you struggle to comprehend? Is there something in life that you just say, I just don't understand it? Think about eternity, just going back, how God is timeless. Is, is that ever something that you have a hard time grasping? Or maybe the Trinity itself? Or just the fact of gravity and an ever-expanding universe? Or I don't know. These things that just kind of just seem to elude us. Most have. Most of us have. We just come to a place where we just either give up, we accept it, or it's just like that's the way it's ever going to be. Especially when we think of some of the great truths of Scripture and the things of God, many times we just say, well, we'll just accept it, even though we may not fully understand it. For most of us, and for most people, I believe, the incarnation of Jesus is right up there. Scientists scoff at the idea. Philosophers ridicule the idea. The doctors deny the possibility of a virgin birth. Even today, religious leaders, preachers, churches, and self-professed Christians tend to ignore the incarnation of Christ or try to explain it away. One broken clock preacher of one of the largest evangelical churches instructs his congregation to just stay away from it, stay clear, and declares it's not really important for Christians to even to believe in it or even defend it. Well, this can be no further from the truth. The incarnation is one of the most miraculous events of all times. It is the bedrock of the story of the Bible and the redemption of God's people. One famous pastor, J.I. Packer, comments this. He says, nothing in, fan- or, excuse me, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Let me give it to you once again. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Now, last week we read of the unexpected arrival of the angel Gabriel, who interrupted Zachariah's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to light the candles and the incense in the temple. This interruption would come with the promise of a son who would be the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth would have the honor of being uh, the parents of John the Baptist. Through this prophetic promise, we see the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God and his call for us to be faithful as we await the fulfilling of the story of the Bible. Again, you and I are still in the midst of that story. Well, as we move forward in our passage today, we're going to move forward through the story of the Bible in the redemption chapter, the theme of redemption, as Luke records the promise of a Messiah, a second son of promise the Son of God, who will provide a way for salvation for His people. But to begin there, we're actually going to move to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It's here on the monitor. And this passage of Scripture says, But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And Father, with that, we ask for you to open up our minds and hearts to receive your word with gladness and with joy. May it quicken our spirits. May our hearts be alive and our ears and minds be attentive. Limit the distractions that many times come with these types of things. Uh, I would pray that you would uh, destroy any scheme Satan has to take this seed and to, and to allow it to fall on, fall on rocky ground. But may it fall on, on fruitful ground. Hearts that are ready to receive your word and ready to respond. Lord, for your glory and our good, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, again, we're in Luke chapter 1. I want you to turn to verses 26 through 38. I want to give you a couple simple observations, many of those things that you might have caught while we read the Scripture earlier. And again, I encourage you to read it during the week with us. Now, as we read earlier in our Scripture reading, Luke is ever the conscientious historian. He gives us the timing, the characters, and the setting and the plot of another unexpected arrival. As we look in Luke, we see that he records the timing of the story as six months after Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah. Elizabeth is now in the sixth month of her pregnancy, and now Gabriel now turns to another young lady, and he makes another prophetic promise. The setting of story now is not in Jerusalem or Judea, but moves 90 miles north to a place called Nazareth, a small town in the area of Galilee, which is mainly made up of Jews mixed with some Gentiles. In this passage, there are only two characters that are included. Joseph is kind of a side note, but the angel Gabriel and Mary. We learned of Gabriel last week, who serves as the messenger of God. He's in in the book of Daniel, as well as here in the book of Luke. Mary is introduced to us as a young woman of probably about 12 years of age, which seems scandalous to us, who is promised in marriage to Joseph. The plot of this passage, of this story, is very simple. We see it every year. We hear about it. We sing about it. But it's a very profound part of Scripture. It's one of the turning points of Scripture. It takes redemption and now moves it almost, say to speak, from moving it uphill to now going downhill. Gabriel appears suddenly to this young woman. And he informs her that she will bear a child who she will name Jesus. Jesus was a popular name at the time. It's the same as Joshua. And it means he shall save his people from their sins. The twist in this story is that Mary, though she's promised in marriage to Joseph, is not yet fully married, nor has she consummated the marriage. She's still a virgin. Now, for many of you have heard these types of explanations before, betrothed was a Jewish custom, or actually I think it was a custom in that area, uh, in many areas today, I think still, is betrothed is where a young woman would be promised in marriage right around the time of puberty. So around 12, 12 and a half, she would be promised in marriage to someone from one family to another. She would spend the next one year at home preparing for that while the man would be preparing uh, his home for his bride. During that year, they are considered married. And the only way to, root to, to end that would be divorce. And we, saw that, we see that in Matthew uh, where, where Joseph actually contemplates putting her away when he finds out that she's going to be pregnant. So they're not yet consummated the marriage. They haven't come together as man and wife, but they are still married. 
But immediately, as we read Luke's account, we realize something special and unique. Something supernaturally is happening here. This is no ordinary promise or prophecy or a visit. The triune God is about to do something so miraculous and extraordinary that it's going to change the course of history as we know it. So what do we make of this passage? We know this story. We can't dismiss it, ignore it, or explain it away, as many do. God is revealing something important to the world through Luke's eyewitnesses' account of this angelic visit. Again, we need to be reminded that Luke is writing an orderly account so that the Gentile believers may have certainty concerning the things that they had been taught. Now, God has preserved this gospel for the very same reason for you and I. It still serves as an orderly account so that you and I may have certainty of the things that we received, believed, and been taught. So let's consider how this passage gives us certainty about this miraculous event. We're going to look at three ways it gives us certainty. Number one, you and I can have certainty about the person and the work of Mary. This passage right here today gives us a, a certainty about who Mary is and what God is doing through her. Unfortunately, <clears throat> over time, many wrong beliefs and doctrines have been established concerning Mary that are very contrary to Scripture. Catholicism in particular has adopted these five wrong beliefs about Mary. You'll see there here at the screen and many of you are familiar with them. One, that Mary is the mother of God. That she was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. That she was conceived without original sin. And this is the uh, Immaculate Conception. I always thought the Immaculate Conception was about Jesus. But really that belief is that Mary herself was, was, ne was without sin. Number four, Mary was taken bodily and soul into heaven. She never saw death. And number five, that Mary plays a unique role in redemption and even today serves as a mediator between us and God. However, you and I must stay true to what Scripture has revealed. And you and I must be careful not to go beyond what Scripture has given us. From this account in Luke, it seems that he had an opportunity to speak with Mary herself about the angelic encounter. Luke has more information than Matthew's gospel, and it focuses on Mary rather than Joseph, as Matthew does. We read of not only the encounter, but what she was thinking and feeling during and after the angelic visit. Hence why I would say I believe that Luke most likely talked to her or someone very, very close to her to get a little bit more insight about what was happening at that miraculous moment. Now, we do read that she was a virgin. She was promised in marriage. But yet, as I said before, she has not consummated. She's still living apart. She was young, as marriage back then usually took place soon, as I said, after the girls reached puberty, puberty. So she was most likely before the age of 13. She would have been living with her parents during their year-long wait for marriage to be consummated. And in verse 28, we read of this encounter. When we read in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And so from here, we start right from this sentence. You'll see where Catholics and others start to venerate Mary above what she really should. But, but the question is, is what is going on here when he says, oh, favored one? Now, Luke records this. She was troubled. 
She's not sure of what the angel meant by these words. In verse 30, the angel continues uh, say, by saying, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So twice, oh favored one, the Lord is with you. You have found favor with God. So, so for us, as we look at this, we think, well, this seems to be someone much more special than we hear even of Elizabeth or Hannah or Sarah or any of the other mothers that had come to God before prayer asking for a son. Much has been made of this greeting. However, we must understand what the angel truly means here. He is not trying to communicate to us that there's something special innate with Mary herself. It's not that she is without sin or has some type of supernatural giftings. But what we find in this greeting is that God has chosen her to fulfill a special role. You see, she's like Noah and Abraham and Jacob and David and Elijah before her. She is going to be used by God to serve him in her generation. She has a special place in the redemption story. Luke is pointing out here that Mary, listen to this, is very important. Here's the key. Luke is pointing out in this portion of scripture that Mary is a recipient, not a dispenser of divine grace. She is a recipient, not a dispenser. She is not someone who has special powers or a special way of giving you grace. Hence the error of many who would pray to her asking for special favors or asking for providence or, 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 for, or for help. She's a recipient. The Lord is with her. She has found favor with God. She is a recipient, not a dispenser of divine grace. The words and phrase used here is similar to what the Apostle Paul writes, um, excuse me, to the Christians as Ephesus, as you look here on the screen in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, when he writes about our salvation. Look what Paul writes. To the praise of his glorious grace, speaking of God, which he has blessed us in the beloved, speaking of Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. Mary, like us, is a recipient of God's divine grace, not a dispenser. You and I are not saved because of something special within us. But the Bible says it's when we were lowly, we were ones that, that were rebellion. We were dead. It's in then that God loved us and chose us. Gabriel does tell her in verse 31, if you're following along, he says, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name, name Jesus. So in this sense, she is the mother of God in that earthly sense. But in reality, that phrase in the Greek actually means God bearer. Just as you and I bear the image of God, she will be one who will physically bear God. This title means nothing more than that she is chosen to be the human vessel that God uses to bring the Messiah into the world. Now, as you and I move to verse 34, Mary pronounces this, her curiosity. is How is this going to happen when she says, but how will this be since I am a virgin? Again, to proclaim that she would be a perpetual virgin, never consummating her marriage with Joseph, or to proclaim that herself, she herself, was born without sin, 
would be going well beyond what Scripture reveals. Of all that we see in Mary, this is one of the largest portions. We never see anything that says that she was without sin or she herself was born without sin or born of a virgin. We can be certain that Mary is just a regular young lady. She's a virgin, promised in marriage to Joseph, chosen by God for a special purpose. If that's not enough for you and I, then you and I should listen and read her own words in verse 38 when she says, Behold, I am a what? A servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your work. She just considers herself a simple, obedient servant of God who submits to his calling and plan and purposes for her life. So let's be certain of this one thing. This passage is not primarily about Mary. And again, that's where you and I, or not not you and I, but many make a mistake. They take this passage and they focus on the wrong thing. And Satan works overtime to convince people to focus on the wrong things, does he not? Jordan Strandridge, a pastor in Virginia, he captures Satan's schemes to exalt Mary well beyond what scripture reveals when he writes this. By exalting Mary in this way, speaking of the the five things that the Catholicism does and others do, by exalting Mary in a way much more than what Scripture does, he goes on to say, it is minimizing, it is minimizing the uniqueness of Christ. See, what people do by venerating Mary, focusing on Mary, what does it does? It minimizes the focusness on Christ. He was the only one who was completely pure and without sin. He is the one who ascended to heaven and now intercedes for us, who is the way and the truth and the life, who gives abundant grace, who is actively working our lives and who is royalty in heaven. However, there are many who would say that's Mary's role. And she serves as co-redemptious, or what's the word, co-redemptor. And you and I must be careful for that. And you and I must understand that there's many that assume those types of facts. We live in a world. And what this really is, is that you and I live in a world that seeks to minimize the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Hence I said what Luke is writing here is for you and I to be certain about the person and work of Mary. We have to get Mary right. We have to keep Mary in her lane, as one man says. We got to keep her in her place. Now, I'm not trying to degenerate what she's done or what God has done through her. We need to recognize that we cannot minimize the personal work of Christ. And in order to do that, they dismiss his person. They deny his works. They disparage his teachings. Satan works overtime to put our focus on anything other than Christ. And this century-old scheme to to maximize the person and work of Mary has led many to worship her rather than to emulate her faithful and humble servant-like heart. Do not be deceived. You and I must trust in the certainty of the scripture witness of who Mary is and what God used her for. The second thing we're going to look at this morning is you and I can have certainty about the importance of the virgin birth. The importance of the virgin birth. 
Go to verse 35. When Mary asked how she shall bear a son without knowing her, knowing a husband, the angel responds in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What Gabriel is here is doing is informing her that this will be a, a creative act creative act, excuse me, of the Holy Spirit. Not the sort of divine human cohabitation sometimes that's seen in pagan mythology. But twice in this passage, Luke points out that she was a virgin. This is to point out that this will not be an ordinary birth. Something special, miraculous is happening. Now, many reject the truth of Christ's birth. It seems too outlandish and ridiculous. But you and I must be certain of its veracity. It is here for us. It is here for a purpose. It informs us that it's God revealing to us his plan of redemption. But you and I must ask, how important really is the virgin birth? How much should you and I fight for, defend it? Is it, is it a first tier uh, doctrine or is it a second tier or a third tier? Can we disagree about it and still be Christian brothers? Can we uh, agree about it or disagree about it and still not be brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ? Is it a salvation issue? And since many people struggle with this concept, should we just ask ourselves, should we just ignore it, skip over it, let it fade in the background? Well, several years ago, the Washington Post published an article with the following comment. The pastor of one of America's largest megachurches stirred up a Christmas controversy after preaching the story of Jesus' virgin birth is not crucial to the Christian faith. So listen to that once again. You have a pastor of one of the largest megachurches in, 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 in the country. One of the most influential saying is that the, 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 the virgin birth, that Jesus was born of a virgin, is not crucial to the Christian faith. In other words, you don't have to truly believe it. You don't have to truly defend it. Just, just let it fade away. It goes on to quote this pastor. He says, if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm not all, all concerned about how they got into the world. Now, let me read that again. I don't think I did that as well. If someone, he says, can predict their own death and resurrection, as Jesus did, he says, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world. Now, to me, that seems like a very flippant statement. He goes on to write or say, Christianity does not hinge on the truth, or listen to what he says, or even the stories around the birth of Christ. It hinges on the erection of Jesus. Now, if you and I step back, we can understand what he's doing. He's talking about 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, if Christ had not died and rose, then our faith is in vain. However, what he's doing is he's minimizing and saying that this truth here that's presented in scripture is not really important to the Christian faith. In other words, our Christianity, our salvation does not hinge on the doctrine of the virgin birth. Now, I do want to be clear that this pastor does affirm the, uh, the virgin birth of Christ. He does affirm the birth of Christ. However, in his passion desire to, to win souls, to convert people, to get them to church, 
He believes that this spiritual truth is more of a hindrance than a help. So in a pragmatic fashion, he counsels his people to refrain from making this truth foundational in the sharing of their faith. In other words, let's not discuss it. Let's not debate it. It's not something that's truly important to our faith. So the question I have to have is, well, doesn't he have a point? Since this can be controversial and hard to believe and defend from a human standpoint, should we also minimize the virgin birth? Is it truly essential to the story of the Bible? Is it essentially necessary for the story of redemption, the theme of redemption in the Bible? Is it time to leave this by the wayside? That's the question you and I have to ask. Well, if I like, I like to, to quote John Pastor, Pastor John MacArthur. He writes this, listen to this. He writes that the importance of the virgin birth cannot be overstated. So get this. He says the importance of this virgin birth that's revealed here in Luke is, cannot be understated, overstated. A right view of the incarnation hinges on the truth that Jesus was virgin born. Both Luke and Matthew expressly state that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. We see in Luke, it's pointed out twice. The Holy Spirit wrought the conception through supernatural means, John MacArthur writes. He says the nature of Christ's conception testifies of both his deity and his sinlessness. So in other words, is the virgin birth important? Should we have a certainty about it? Whether or not you and I can describe or explain how it happened, is it important to us to hold on to? And I believe his answer is yes. And I believe it's correct. I put this one here on the boards or on the monitor so you can read with us. It's from Al Mohler. He writes this. If Jesus was not born of the virgin, then listen to this. The Bible cannot be trusted when it comes to telling us the story of Jesus. And that mistrust cannot be limited to how he came to us in terms of the incarnation. The fact is that biblical Christianity and ultimately the gospel of Christ cannot survive the denial of the virgin birth. Now that is a strong statement. He says Christianity cannot survive without it. Because without the virgin birth, you end up with a very different Jesus than the fully human, fully divine Savior that's revealed in Scripture. So you and I must have certainty about the person and the work of Mary. But you and I must have certainty about the importance of the virgin birth. It's more than just a children's song or just a simple Christmas play. There's a role that it plays in the redemption story. To sum up both theologians, yes, the virgin birth is important. It must be received. It must be accepted and believed by God's children for salvation. I would say if you cannot accept that fact, you cannot know Christ. Because if you accept Christ without that fact, you are accepting a different Christ than that which has been preached, teach, and delivered over. And you and I must understand that. It's an important biblical doctrine with many implications. 
And if we fail there, then it spreads throughout the rest of Scripture as untrustworthy. The angel Gabriel informs her, as well as Luke's readers, then and even now today, that the Holy Spirit will perform this great miracle. You and I cannot explain it. We can't describe it in medical terms. All we can know that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. So that Mary will become pregnant without having sexual relations with a man. If you can believe that Jesus walked on water, you can believe in the virgin birth. If you believe Jesus healed a blind man, a deaf man, and made the lame to walk, then you can believe that Jesus can make a woman who's never had intercourse have, be pregnant. We can believe these things because the power of the Holy Spirit is powerful. This miraculous event indicates that Jesus' holiness derives from his being conceived by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Though Jesus was a genuine human being, he had to learn, he had to grow. He got sick, he had to eat, he had to sleep. If you cut him, he would bleed. He had feelings like you and I. He was a genuine human being, but what you and I must understand, and this is why we must have certainty about the importance of the virgin birth, he did not inherit a sinful nature and disposition from Adam. And we will look at this a little bit more next week. For sin, for sin comes by whom? Adam. And by Adam to all men. Luke is writing that you and I may have certainty that Jesus, the second Adam, is fathered by God just as the first Adam was fathered by God. God spoke. God built. God made Adam the same way he made the second Adam by sending the Holy Spirit. Now, you all have to admit that this can be a different, difficult, or excuse me, a difficult doctrine to swallow. It's hard for you and I to comprehend. However, does not the Apostle Paul tells us, tell us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God? For they're folly to him. They're not able to understand it because they are spiritually discerned. So you and I and I have to recognize that you and I have no ability to describe it and defend it and to tell it to someone to where their complete knowledge of it. You and I have, must understand the same way that Christ has awakened us through the Holy Spirit, that must be happening for someone else to receive it. Understanding how difficult this news must be to Mary as we continue in the story, the angel gives her some earthly evidence of this supernatural providence in verse 36. He says, if you think this is difficult, Mary, how can this happen? He goes on to tell her, but he goes on to tell her, this is why you can trust me. Here's some evidence. Behold your relative Elizabeth in her old age. She has also conceived a son, and she is now in her sixth month. And to make it more so, he says, she was the one who was called barren. As evidence, he shares the good news that God has opened up the womb of Elizabeth in her old age and has given her a son that she had given up hope of ever having. God says, here is the hope. Here is the hope of redemption. God can make alive that which was dead. In verse 37, Gabriel closes the conversation by proclaiming a simple truth that you and I must grasp. Look at verse 38, 7. 
For nothing will be impossible with God. You and I must understand that. Nothing is impossible with God. And for you and I, that's the answer to those things that you and I cannot explain through human means, through human philosophy, for human wisdom. Nothing is impossible with God. If he can raise the dead, he can put in a child in a barren womb. He can bring from, from, from a womb that's even, that, from a woman that's never been with a man, he can bring forth a son. How you and I must grasp this wonderful truth that nothing is impossible with God. The Bible story is full of the wonderful works of God. From creation, redemption, to uh, consummation, God is at work. God is the almighty creator, the provider and sustainer of all of creation. And you and I must never despair or doubt his goodness, his love, or his word. The question many, many may have asked is, why did God plan it this way? This is not how I would have planned maybe to redeem the world. This is maybe not the way that you and I would have done so. But what you and I have to understand is, why does God choose to redeem his people through a young girl in such a strange and unfamiliar way? I want to leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. It's here on the monitor. It's found in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing. Things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. You and I have certainty that nothing is impossible with God. Let us have certainty about the truths of Scripture with the same faith and humbleness of Mary who responds to all this wonderful news with all these things that are coming at her at a young age. She says this once again in verse 38, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your world, to your word. May you and I respond to God's word and calling and plan and purpose in the same way. Now you and I have one more certainty in this passage to cover. However, due to time constraints, my desire to cover this certainty fully and with the gravity it desires, I invoke my to be continued OVB award and we're going to finish up next week. I want to encourage you to invite your family and your friends next week for our Christmas play. And also as we come to the third and last certainty that we find in this story of Mary. And in it, you and I can have certainty about the person and work of Mary and about the importance of the virgin birth. Let us remember these truths are here for you and I that we can be certain of the things that God has given us. Let's bow our head and close our eyes as the worship team comes up. We're done just a little bit early this morning. But I encourage you, don't run from the truths of Scripture. In the same way, for those many of you who may have friends and family that may be caught up in a merry worship and merry veneration, is to lovingly share with them these portions of Scripture 
and always go back to Scripture and share with them what God is leading, how God is directing us, how we can answer these things. For these things are revealed that we may have certainty that you and I can share the truths of Scripture, that we may maximize who Jesus Christ is, the Son of the Most Holy God, the living God himself. There we had bowed eyes. Let's sing, pray. <laughs> I'm all over the place this morning. Father, we just come before you and we thank you for these truths. And Father, we thank you that you want to give us certainty. For we live in a day and age that wants to divide and distract and divert your truths. And Father, we have fallen many times to these traps. But we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the clarity that we have when we come before it and we read it for what it is. We accept it for what your spirit has and we respond in the same way. So Lord, I pray that you give us certainty this morning. Lord, help us to be good witnesses of that which you've given us. And we thank you for your plan, as strange and as difficult and unique as it is. Lord, let us embrace it with all the truth that it holds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.